Good morning, Watermark. Good morning. My name is Jeff Ward. I get to serve here on staff on the external focus team, and I'm super excited that you guys are here with us this morning. As you know, we've been tracking through our Better Together series, really focusing on the core values of what we're all about in our small churches, our communities. So we've talked about devoting daily, and we've talked about counseling biblically, and living authentically, and pursuing relationally. And uh, and today, we're focusing on really the last core value of what our small groups are all about, and that is engaging missionally. So we're going to talk about taking all of the blessings and all of the value that happens through those values and then taking them outside of our small groups, outside of our circles to people uh, who are lost and lonely or who who are in need and want to be introduced to uh, our Savior Christ. And so we're going to talk about that today. Adam and I uh, had an opportunity this summer to be on this stage discussing this as well. And we talked about how as community groups, we are inward focused and we are also outward focused and how healthy groups do both. So we're gonna track along with that value today. I think you're gonna be inspired and encouraged. You're gonna get to hear a little bit from me around this and then you're gonna get to hear from a couple of my friends, Christy Shermack and Bruce Kendrick. So buckle up, here we go. When the early church was just getting started, it faced a lot of uh, opposition, persecution, a lot of threats, frankly and opportunities. And so the writer in Acts 6, as he's talking about the early church, wants us to be aware of one threat particularly for the church then and the church now. So if you have your Bibles, grab them and open them up, and we'll be reading. You can follow along with me right there at the beginning of Acts 6, starting with verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So by way of background, we're talking about widows in the days of the early church. Widows at that time were a marginalized class of people. They really had no ability to care for themselves. And so the early church, doing what the church is called to do, leaned into this need. And they developed a system of providing care for these widows that included a daily allotment, a daily portion of food that would be distributed. And so the complaint that the early church leaders are hearing is really one of uh, racism and favoritism. You have the the Greek converts, the Hellenists, saying, hey, we're uh, we're getting short shrift in the daily apportionment. The ethnic Jews who've converted to Christianity are receiving more. And so what did the church do in response? They acted promptly and immediately. They gathered a group of all the disciples and they prayerfully began to create a solution for the problem, and it was the church's response, really, to this social injustice 
that really helped carry the church forward. In fact, that is the first uh, reference to what we call deacons, is there. So structurally, the church uh, became more responsive to the needs in the community. And then to a watching world, because it says, as a result of the church's excellence and creativity in responding to this, that uh, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This last point has always kind of escaped me. I've read this a number of times, but it says that even these priests were drawn to Christ because of the church's response. And we want to be careful because we don't want to read too much into scripture where it is not explicit, but there seems to be a connection here of the church immediately and promptly and visibly responding to a social injustice that's happening in the community amongst the marginalized that causes even enemies of the faith, priests, who couldn't be more opposed to the cause of Christ to go, hey, we're, we're interested now. We want to hear more about this Jesus that you guys are following. And that is the history of the people of God. That is our legacy. That is our heritage that because of the overflow of the grace and mercy of what God has done in our lives through Jesus Christ, we then lean in. We move into the needs that we see in our community. And that has been our prayer here at Watermark since the very early days, is that folks that might not agree with our theology or our faith would stand up and say, huh, there's something interesting happening in that church because of the way that they care for folks in need. Matthew 5.16 says that we are to let our light shine before men, that they may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And so we say often that good deeds create goodwill that creates an open door for the good news. So we're gonna talk about all of that today. So let's dive in and I wanna put an image up on the screen for you guys. You remember these? If you're over 40, you might. For those under 40, those are called maps. That's how we used to get around. That's how we got where we were going. And yes, it might've taken longer to fold and unfold those things and chart out a map than it actually did to drive there but that was the tools that we had to work with. So that's what we used. And um, in fact, sometimes if you had a, a super long road trip, you might even go to your local AAA office. Anybody remember that? And you'd have them you know, highlight the routes for you and give you a whole bunch of maps. And, uh, and that's how we got around. And, and here's the thing. You could spend all that time sort of charting out a path, but then as you're actually driving, you might encounter roads that have changed since your map was printed. Or you might run into traffic or weather delays. I see some nodded heads, you know. And, uh, and then you'd have to unfold that whole thing and start all over. Maps were really kind of a one-size-fits-all tool. I mean, you know, whether you lived in DeSoto or Rockwall or Louisville or Oak Cliff, you'd open up the same map, try to find yourself, try to find where you're going, and then chart a path. That was the era of maps. Thankfully, today we have GPS technology. And I don't know everything there is to know about GPS, obviously, but I do know it's a complicated system of satellites that track data in real time and then beam that down to Earth. And that, that technology is incorporated into planes and trains and our automobiles and even our phones. Now we can navigate in real time. And it's designed for you. So when you pull up your... Waze or your Maps app, it finds you on the map and then helps you navigate to where you want to go. In fact, 
it changes that path depending on the circumstances, right? I mean, each day I could have a different path depending on the obstacles, the weather, the traffic conditions, and all those sorts of things. It helps me get to where I'm going. And I start with that because missional engagement, when we talk about that, it can be confusing. It can be feel complicated. You might feel like a map, like, I mean, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, this sounds super complicated. How do I even take my first step as I I know that I want to be all in. I want to love and serve others. I want to be missional in my city, and I want to care about things around the world. But where do I start? Being missional is no longer like a map. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not a list of uh, service opportunities that you check a box. There's nothing inspiring about that because God has uniquely wired and gifted and given us passions. And so we want your service, your missional engagement to line up with your wiring and your skills and your passions and all the things, the gifts that God has given you. I want to teach you this morning just a way to think about missional engagement and how to begin that process. And the reason that I'm doing that as opposed to giving you sort of a concrete next step is because life changes. Our missional engagement can look very different. So, man, if you're single, missional engagement might look very different than when you're married. And when you don't have kids, missional engagement looks very different than when you have kids. And if you move geographically, your context could be different, or you might change jobs, vocations, and you might uh, have some new skills to put to work. And so in any kind of context, my hope is that you can apply this easy paradigm to think about your missional engagement next steps. And so as you think about that, maybe it's helpful for you to think in terms of GPS. So G is gifts. Scripture says, as a believer in Christ, every one of you has been given a spiritual gift to be used to build up the church and to serve others. 1 Peter 4.10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So it might be teaching, it might be leading, it might be administration, exhortation, or any number of, uh, of other gifts. And you will definitely want to consider your spiritual gifts as you think about your gift mix and how to engage missionally. But you're also going to want to think about your other gifts, the other gifts that God has given you, which could be experiences in life that could be a platform to minister to others, Um, your vocation as a platform both for you to engage your colleagues, your coworkers, your clients, your customers with spiritual conversations Um, but also as a day-to-day sort of means of engaging and loving and serving your city. Vocation, whether inside or outside the home, can be a platform for you to engage missionally. Your personality, your wiring, your abilities, all of those things can be used to be missional and to engage others. So what are your spiritual gifts this morning? What are you good at? What have you experienced What do you do on a daily basis that God might use to advance his kingdom? That's what this is all about. P, passions. What do you care the most about? Think about the issues in our community or world that your heart breaks over. Maybe there's a particular cause or a people group that resonates with you, that your heart starts to beat faster and you start thinking of ideas and creative ways to move in and engage and to see change. Maybe, for example, you care about refugees Maybe you care about international students, like the story about Sherry, who came to Christ through a ministry to international students. Maybe you care about the homeless. 
Maybe it's incarcerated folks. Maybe your heart goes out to moms, of, of single moms, young kids, the disabled or seniors. It could be that you care about clean water around the world in places where there is none, or you want to be part of combating human trafficking around the world. Many things could touch someone's heart, but what touches yours? Lastly, S, specific needs. So think about the things around in your neighborhood or your city, the challenges that your community is facing and that you've heard people share about. It could be ongoing, big, systemic challenges. Like we are busy working with, uh, on academic intervention and reading with third graders and in schools and uh, we are working with uh, men and women in prison to work through hurts and habits and hangups. We're helping assimilate them as they transition out. We're working with at-risk men and women uh, with traditional barriers to employment to learn biblical financial literacy and incentivize savings and job creation in a discipleship context. We're working with families with an unexpected pregnancy to bring the body of Christ around in a way where we can truly be pro-life in every sense of the word and show tangibly how we can care and support for uh, that mom and that life inside of her. In addition to the broad community challenges, I just encourage you to think local, think micro too. So uh, after the recent tornadoes here in Dallas, I mean, there, were, there was actually a church that met here in this room uh, because their building had been blown away. And you likely had friends and relatives, neighbors who had lost electricity, needed clothing, needed shelter. We as the body of Christ can move in in those situations. And um, in my neighborhood, we use the um, Nextdoor app. Anybody else have that? Okay, some of you guys do. And so as you sit here right now, you're probably getting all kinds of alerts about lost dogs. We get a lot of those on the Nextdoor app and a lot of the ones, you know, kids are racing through the neighborhood, they're going too fast, there's, there's those. But it's a great place, it's a great platform right there in front of us to be missional because people will post needs that they have. Hey, our lawnmower's broken. We just need somebody to come mow our yard or pull some weeds. Or if you're like me and you've got the sink apart in 50 parts, I just take a picture and I blast it out there. Somebody help me, please. Uh, you know, we were uh, driving through the neighborhood as a family and um, a lady posted something on next door. just said, hey, my husband is in a wheelchair. I'm trying to get this uh, wheelchair attached carrier attached to the hitch on the back of my car so that we can make it to a doctor's appointment. And so a few streets over. We just made a little detour. We went over. We spent some time with this lady. I got my two big old uh, boys, and they've got that hitch on in a matter of minutes. And we've developed just a friendship uh, with this sweet lady that continues to this day. Her needs all around, just right here in our communities, in your kids' school, in your workplace, with your colleagues. One of my favorite stories is a young mom uh, in a neighborhood near here who had a friend that was teaching in a school. And the teacher said to her, hey, we got the star test coming up. We could really use some bottled water. You think you could bring some water? And she was like, sure, I'll load up the back of my SUV and I'll bring some cases of water. And so she uh, does that, brings that up to the school. And out of that, sort of developed this little ministry to this school that now 40 or 50 watermark folks are actually adopting classrooms and they're working with teachers and they're impacting that school. And uh, to the extent that even the district named watermark, they're faith-based partner of the year that year. Just a simple, faithful first step. Just a, a lady who said, I'm going to start simply and I'm going to simply start. There are really practical next steps 
to finding sort of that strategic intersection between your gift, your passion, your wiring with the needs of the community. And you can find that service sweet spot. And so many of those tools we've developed over the last few weeks, they're in your Watermark News. I would encourage you to take that insert out, take that back to your community. There's discussion questions on there for your community to help you process through all of that. There is uh, watermark.org slash group serve. Nine very practical ways that you and your community can begin to process your GPS together. You might go on there and say, hey, we wanna, we'll sign up for that straightforward service email. That's just a, an email that goes out once a month from our team with the top four or five ways that you can love and serve your community and city really easy. And you might be the person in your community group who says, hey, I'll take that email in my inbox. There's 1,500 folks on that distribution list. So really easy, practical ways. We don't have to overthink this. We simply start, start simply. And your intersection, your, your service sweet spot sort of comes to you as you begin to love and serve and and work out your wiring and God will light up sort of ways that you can be impactful with those around you. And so again, simply start and start simply. Don't forget the role of your community in all of this. They have committed to shepherd you, to help you identify your gifts, to develop your gifts, to ensure that you're fully deployed. And so man, do this process together as a group. Go through that together. They might even want to come and serve with you. And so uh, involve your community in this GPS thinking to help you navigate missionally right where God has you. Now, you're gonna get to hear from my friend, Christy Shermack. And as she's making her way up, uh, she's been on our staff about five years. We brought her on to help sort of lead and launch our first urgent care clinic. She now leads our entire Watermark Health Ministry, which includes uh, multiple urgent care clinics, maybe another one coming online, a mobile clinic coming, and a whole bunch of other initiatives. So would you please welcome now, my friend, Christy. Thanks, Jeff. All right, Watermark. Here we go. Good morning. Well, as Jeff mentioned, my name is Christy. And as the elders invited me to share with you this morning, I was so excited because I knew exactly where I wanted to start. And it was simply this. I love what God is doing through my church. I get to sit in a really unique seat and watch him at work around our city. He's working miracles. He's winning people over to himself. He's using my church to do it. And I absolutely love watching him at work through my church. And so I actually wrote down a couple of things that I've seen God do through my church in the last 12 months, because I know not everyone might be familiar with it. And so this is what I've seen God do through my church in the last 12 months. He's helped children in the foster care system have an advocate. He saved women out of the sex trade. Women who are struggling with same-sex attraction are finding freedom. Young adults from around the world are coming here to learn how to be the church. We're building a church body up in Frisco. I'd estimate that 30,000 people through my church God has used to hear the gospel. Around 10,000 got healthcare that they wouldn't have gotten elsewhere. Corporate America is being transformed through Bible studies during lunch. Church leaders in India are being trained and people in the DR are getting medical care they would not have gotten before. In short, God is using my church to change this city. Yes, it's worth, it's worth being excited about. It's fun stuff, but a lot of you might actually not know my church, so I wanted to make sure I brought a picture of them. There they are. So that might not have been what you were expecting, but they're the six women that I get to be in community with that I have seen God do that list of things through. Six women, that big list, and my hope and my dream is that every single small community group like that would have a similar list. And so, of course, I'm using that language, my church, to drive home a point 
I'm trying to acknowledge that oftentimes when we talk about what God is doing through our church, we immediately jump to a 2020 review or we jump to a program or a staff member and we skip the step of evaluating how we're doing in our smaller circles. And so you've heard Todd on this stage multiple times say that we are one church, four campuses, thousands of locations. It's even on our website, worded like that. And the the truth is that the picture I showed is my location. My church is much bigger than that. And I know that there are thousands of other locations that are getting after it and have a similar list that mine does. But I also think that many of us find ourselves underdeployed. And when we hear a list like that, we get overwhelmed and think that that could never be us. But in 1 Peter chapter two, we're reminded what the church is called to. So Peter has these words, he says, we are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And he continues that while we were once not a people, we now are a people. And we're supposed to live as foreigners in our land. He says that the Gentiles should see the good works that we do and because of it glorify God, even if they disagree with what we have to say about who he is. And so your list might look different. Your small location, your community group, your list might look different than mine. Maybe you're gonna go deep in one area together or maybe you're gonna be spread across multiple like my church is. But I believe that God wants to do similar things through each of us. And so in my role, I get to watch as hundreds of people move from underdeployed to fully deployed, fully on mission. And what I've seen happen time and time again is there are three core lies that we have to wrestle with before we're fully deployed. And so what I'd invite you to do as I kind of walk through those three core lies is evaluate how is your church doing? How is your location doing? Are you believing these lies? Have you heard other people in your small circles vocalize them? And then we're gonna talk through some ways we can respond to them with God's truth. So here we go. This is the first lie that I've seen us wrestle with that keeps us from being fully engaged, fully engaged missionally in our city. And it's this, one, I don't have enough time. So I get it. This is often the first line of defense, a weekend where we do a message series like this, or maybe you go to the membership class and you hear about a serving requirement to be a member here, and it's easy to jump to, I don't have time for that. I'm so overwhelmed already. And you're right. We live in a very overcommitted, overbooked culture. But if we look at God's word, I think he has something to say about the lie that I don't have enough time. Genesis 1, 1 through 3 tells me that God created the heavens and the earth. He split the light from the dark. He called it day and he said it was good. Psalm 139, 16 tells me that God has ordained my days before I was even born. So the saying, I don't have enough time just isn't true. I have exactly as much time as the Lord would have me had. And it's up to me to figure out how I'm gonna use it. The reality is that Mother Teresa had just as many hours in a day as we do. Paul had just as many minutes in an hour as we do. It's how we use them that matters. So what I think we mean when we say I don't have enough time is that's just not important to me. I have other priorities, other things that I'm giving my time to. But I think if we were to sit down with our community group and evaluate how our time was being spent, we'd be a little bit surprised. How much of it is going to work versus family time, versus time on your phone scrolling, versus time in front of Netflix. What are we putting our time towards? Uh, We actually, as I mentioned earlier, we live in a culture that is overcommitted and has expected us to be in constant communication with one another. And that 1 Peter 2 verse that I read reminds us that we are to be foreigners in our land. So if we're living in a land that has idolized busyness, then we're gonna need to swim upstream against it. We're called to swim upstream from the current of our culture. And so for us, I think that looks like a constant evaluation of our time. What's it going to? Do we walk into a room and feel more valued because we feel like we're busy and we need to kill that idol in our life? 
And so I wanna be abundantly clear. If you're hearing me say, go do more, I'm not being clear, that's not it. So I wanna say, I'm not saying go do more. I'm saying let's do better with the time that we do have. Let's evaluate how we're spending it and put it in front of the Lord and ask him how we should use it. So some of us, you actually might need to make some changes. There might be things in your schedule and your day-to-day that point towards not trusting the Lord and we need to replace it with things that do. But others of us don't need to change a single thing in our calendar. And we just need to shift our perspective on how we use that time. So I actually got to learn this um, most clearly when I worked in an engineering firm for five years before I came on staff here. I worked at an environmental consulting firm in corporate America. And I had just become a believer the year before. And I was in that job believing the lie that in order to be on mission, I had to go to a foreign land, live in a tent and engage with people that I had never met before. And the Lord in his kindness just helped me to see that that was not true. I was sitting there day in and day out, struggling with why am I here, hating those eight hours and desiring the 5.30, six o'clock buzzer where I could leave and go go do things that I thought mattered with my local church. And so instead God one day had me kind of pick up my eyes and look around and all of a sudden, I realized that sitting three feet away from me were people that um, had marriages that were struggling, people who had families that were sick, people who had kids that were wayward, people that ascribed to different faith systems. And the Lord showed me that, hey, this is the mission field that I've given you eight hours a day. Don't sit here whining and complaining about another one that you're not on right now. Invest here. And as I was diligent to do that with the encouragement of the people around me in this church body that showed me how to do that, it became a wild adventure. All of a sudden, it mattered what I did with those eight hours. All of a sudden, it mattered how I walked to the break room and who I talked to on the way. It mattered how I spent my lunch break. Was I praying for my coworkers during my lunch break? Was I starting Bible studies during my lunch break? All of a sudden, all these little things mattered and I wasn't just wasting time. And I would tell you, I saw the Lord work amazing things at that time of the engineering firm. I saw people come to know Jesus. I saw people come to understand who God was for the first time. People get plugged in here for the first time. And so it was a wild ride. And so for many of you, I'm not asking you to change anything. I'm just asking you to shift your perspective on what God might have you be doing. I think God's word might be pushing you to shift your perspective on what you can do with your time. So if you're a new mom and it was hard enough to get in here with your hair brushed because it is hard work to keep a human alive, I get it. We're not asking you to add anything to your calendar. All I'm asking is that you maybe consider, what does God want me to do with those people that I'm sitting next to day in, day out during play dates? Am I treating them the way that he would have me treat them? If you're a student and you are up to your eyeballs in classwork and overwhelmed and not sure what to do next because you are trying to just get to the next test, I'm not necessarily asking you to shift your whole calendar. I think maybe God's word is instead asking you to just pick up your eyeballs, look around and see who you're studying next to and to love them how he would. If you're headed on from work, busy from work, going to a soccer game, we're not asking you to all of a sudden stop doing those things. We're just asking you to pick up your eyes from your phone and engage with the person sitting next to you in the bleachers. So the goal is not to do more. The goal is to do just as much as God is asking you to. And I think his word might challenge us with how we're spending some of our time. And so as much fun as that is, I would just say, how can you not make time for this? It's a wild ride. Don't miss out. The second point is this, I'm not blank enough. And so you can fill in the blank how you want to. Here's how I've heard it filled in a few times. I'm not old enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not smart enough, rich enough, bold enough, experienced enough. Sometimes you might feel on this stage like you're not tall enough. Um, I'm actually six feet tall though, so I perpetuate the stereotype. Sorry about that. But no matter how you fill in that blank, at the end of it, you're saying, I'm not enough. And so actually, this is good news. It's true. You are not enough. You were never designed to be enough. 
You were never asked to be enough. Paul's wor- wor- uh, God's word through Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 reminds us that it's God's grace that is enough. He says God's grace is sh- sufficient. He says his power is made perfect in our weaknesses. We're actually called to boast in our weaknesses because through our weakness, that is when we're strong. So you were never told to be enough. You were actually told to be dependent. Um, I've actually come to find out that the more I'm in the world of engaging missionally, what that really looks like most times is just showing up and acknowledging I'm not enough, but God is. So we see this play out every single day at our urgent care clinics. Uh, As Jeff mentioned, I get to hang out at the two of them, one here in Dallas and one up in Collin County near our Plano campus. And all the time we see nurses come in and as they go through our orientation, they usually say something like, well, I'll just do the medical side and I'll help with labs or I'll do vitals, but you have someone else that's gonna pray for people, right? You have someone else that can share the gospel. And we're, we're kind about it. We um, are gentle with our answer to that. We'll help train them up as we need to. But there's gonna be a point where we give them a gentle nudge into a patient room and we say, hey, you've, you've got this. The Lord has you. Just go in and trust him. And what happens every single day is the church is showing up in those rooms and it's saying, I'm not enough, but my God is. Let me tell you about him. And God loves to work through that. We see crazy things happen in our clinics from Muslims meeting Jesus to transgendered men and women feeling welcomed and loved and cared for by the church, women choosing life for their babies. And it's simply happening because the church is showing up and saying, I'm not enough, but my God is. Early on when I was at the clinic, we actually had one nurse come out of a patient room physically shaking because of the adrenaline rushing through her um, from sharing the gospel for the first time. And so what I would say to you that if your first thought is um, on the topic of engaging missionally that I'm not enough and you follow that up with, but God is, and you figure out how to trust him in the middle of it, then you're headed in the right direction. You too might come out of a room sometime physically shaking from adrenaline of what God has done in front of you. But if... Your first thought is, I'm not enough, and you follow that with the thought of, well, I guess that means I don't get to do anything or I don't have to do anything. Or maybe someone else will speak up. It's not my job, I'm not enough. Then I would just warn you from John 10, 10 that the enemy is working overtime to steal, kill, and destroy the abundant life that God has offered you. So don't miss out on it. Don't allow the temptation to make feeding others become about you. And then I'll wrap up here with just my third lie that I see us believe. It's this, they don't need me. And so what I would say very loudly and clearly to that is we absolutely need you. We desperately need you. If we're gonna be the church that Jesus has commissioned in Matthew 16, 18, we're going to be fighting back the gates of hell. And I don't know if you guys know this, but there's actually a war that is raging on. The enemy is roaming around like a lion trying to devour people. And because we know this book, because we read it, because we ascribe our lives to it, we know how to set the captives free. There are systems that are unjust that we know how to fix because we follow this word and we have our Jesus with us side by side and there's a war waging on and I actually have a missions report for for you from the front lines and it's simply this, we need you. If you think everything's been fine and taken care of, I would just ask you to look again. This week alone at our two clinics, there will be spots that go unfilled because we don't have enough volunteers, which means we will see less patients, less people will be cared for and hear the gospel. We have patients that come to our clinic and they have a good experience there and they fill out a form and they ask, they raise their hand. They go to the trouble to write down their name, raise their hand and say, hey, I would like for someone from the church to follow up with me and we can't do it. They're sitting in a queue because we don't have enough volunteers. The church has not showed up yet. 
There are people in prison that are asking for regen mentors. There's refugees waiting to learn English. There are internal ministries to this church that we can't grow or launch yet because we don't have the leaders that have shown up. And the enemy has tricked you into thinking that we don't need you. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul describes the church as a body with many members. The eye needs its foot, the hand needs its elbow. You were uniquely designed for a specific purpose. And in the same way that the hand needs its ear, we need you to play a role. Jesus, after speaking with the multitude, says to his disciples that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then he encourages them to pray to the Lord of the harvest. So I'm gonna do that. Lord, we do. We just ask that you would free us from the lies we believe that slow us down. I thank you for the many thousands of church locations in this room and listening and at our different campuses that are abiding by your word and are going out into the city and telling others about you. And I pray they'd be encouraged. And I pray each of us would be challenged to trust you more. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Y'all welcome my friend, Bruce. Hey friends, hey family. If you've got your Bible on, you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And um, while we're turning there, I want to turn your mind to 1883 and uh, the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge. And so for the very first time, uh, the islands of Manhattan and Long Island are going to get connected. Uh, The Brooklyn Bridge was the longest bridge by far of any time uh, and just world renowned. Uh, And so plenty of opposition, of course, like anytime that you want to do something big and you want to, you just have this gargantuan vision of connecting what would become uh, really the world's most influential city. You had people that went, no, this is going to be too costly. No, the construction is going to be too difficult. And in many ways they were correct. They had to raise the entire bridge several inches, two years after they submitted the initial plan. When they went and started uh, digging down on the Brooklyn side, they established the foundation uh, down in the bedrock under the the river. Um, And when they went over to the Manhattan side to establish that foundation, they got down there and realized they were gonna have to dig twice as deep on that side. And yet they completed the bridge. And a year later in 1884, Uh, They asked P.T. Barnum from The Greatest Showman uh, and from uh, Barnum and Bailey Circus fame uh, to walk 21 elephants across the bridge just to give confidence to the masses to say, this bridge is established. It's not going anywhere. And in connecting this this area, they were able to make New York City really what it is today. But I share all that because when we talk about engaging missionally, what we're talking about is building bridges that similarly require deep foundations in the gospel and an understanding of the complex issues that are going on in our culture. And so these are bridges that don't just send people over from uh, one side. They're also bridges that bring others in from the other side. And unfortunately, uh, as the church, we sometimes don't build a bridge at all. And when we do, we often just think of how can I get over there? How can I go serve them instead of thinking of how they can reach us? And so uh, with that in mind, let's consider how we engage missionally by building bridges that welcome others in as we continue to be sent out. Deuteronomy 10, verse 18 and following. It says that he, that is God, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those 
who are foreigners. Don't miss this. You are to love those who are foreigners for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. This passage is really the first biblical mandate that we have to go serve and love those in our communities. And uh, it, it does so not by saying you have an obligation to do so as God's people or that we should show pity to those who are in need. God charges us with this as his people and says, we do this out of empathy because we were once foreigners. We were once widows. We were once the fatherless. We were once the ones who were on the outside of God's kingdom. And he made a way, he engrafted us into his family that we would be called sons and daughters of the most high king, that we would be heirs with Christ. You may have heard uh, Todd in the past say, look, God doesn't have grandchildren. And so we're welcomed into God's family so that we can turn around and we can welcome others in. Um, my wife and I, we moved into our very first house and um, it was one of those little starter homes, like the three bedroom, two bath kind of home. And uh, we had our first biological daughter who was kind of on the way. This is us uh, many years ago, courtesy of JCPenney Portrait Studios. Um, <laughs> Good old J.C. Penney. Uh, you buy a membership and then you're just stuck and you just keep going back. Anyway, um, so we move into our first house and uh, we've got our first daughter and we've got the bedroom we're in and then we just had this empty bedroom and we're still in college uh, and my wife just looked at me and said, what do you think about becoming foster parents? And quite frankly, there was no part of me that like was really excited about that. Like the clouds didn't part, the angels didn't descend, trumpets didn't sound. I just went, you know what? I've read something about caring for the orphan, the fatherless or the vulnerable in my Bible. And so, yeah, let's do that. And I wanna ask you, as you kind of mentally look around what God has given you, is there an empty room? Is there an empty seat at your table? Is there an empty seat in your car? Um, when's the last time you had to pay to change out the carpet in your house and tell the guys that were coming to replace it, yeah, we had to change it out because it just gets used so much. And we wanted God to use the stuff that we had, not just the stuff that we had, but we saw our marriage and our kids, our family as resources that God had provided to us for us to steward for his purposes in his kingdom. And 15 years later, we fostered dozens of children and usually just one child at a time. Um, but it's a funny thing when you read God's word and you start to be faithful and obedient to him, how he just continues to provide resources and you go, hey God, if you'll provide resources, we'll be faithful with them. And so today we've got nine children, ages six to 27. We've got three grandkids and I'm in my late thirties. They didn't put that on the brochure when we started saying we were interested in foster care. But that was our bridge. We didn't have to go overseas. We just had to be faithful with what we had. And this is not gonna be you, right? Um, I've already won anyway. I've got the most kids, okay? The competition's over. Man, but God's shown up in such an incredible way. He's ripped the facade off of our faith. And in his mercy and kindness and patience with us, 
He's revealed that his plans are better than our plans. And so really with the rest of our time, uh, I just wanna share how God's continuing to use you and our church as a whole through Watermark's life initiatives and ask you to consider how you and your church or your family might engage missionally with us. Because I joined staff here just a couple years ago and um, I'm supposed to oversee what all is going on in foster care here in Dallas County. And then we have this after abortion care ministry that I was supervising and working with. And we started meeting together as leaders and I immediately recognized that we would never wait until a child needs to be adopted to begin caring for them. So why would we wait until a woman or a man's participated in an abortion to begin caring for them? I had some friends that just went, hey, let's go upstream. What would it look like for us to come alongside those with unexpected pregnancies who feel like the sky is falling down and stand next to them and go, hey, you're not alone and speak truth into their hearts and lives. And for those that have had abortion as a part of their story, uh, while we're still developing the Life Initiative, and we have some exciting things coming forward that I want to invite you into. If you're interested in serving in this area of ministry, you can go to watermark.org slash TLI. But I'm confident that if abortion's a part of your past, shame doesn't have a home in this church. And you may have been convinced of the lie that in the same way that you were ushered into the side door of an abortion clinic, that you should be ushered into the side door of the church. But when Jesus says that he has come, that we may have life and have it abundantly, there's no caveat on that. You may have some other secret sin that you're just kind of holding off to the side. And Christ didn't just come so that we could experience healing and forgiveness. He came that we would experience freedom. And as we are free, we get to turn around and set others free. And so there are those that are coming after you. We don't wanna expose you by asking you to step into the light. We wanna encourage you to stand in freedom in the light and be able to turn around and, and walk others into it and go, hey, there's freedom here. Shame doesn't have a home. Abortion doesn't have the last word, Christ does. We also recognized if our focus on children in foster care was adoption first or adoption only um, and not family restoration, that we were missing the biblical precedent to care for uh, these vulnerable families, that uh, we have somehow confused uh, our, our ambition to make sure that children have a home with the reality that many of the children who are relegated to orphanages internationally and those who are in foster care domestically uh, actually have extended family members who could care for them if we were to pri prioritize uh, family restoration in a biblical way and that adoption's not just the answer for abortion um, or for vulnerable children. And so... Uh, this March, we'll actually launch a court-ordered parenting class that some friends and I have developed where we're going to CPS and we're saying, hey, when you have to remove a child into foster care due to abuse or neglect, you can turn right around to that parent and say, go to Watermark, they'll help you get your kids back. We've got some friends that are already partnering. Yeah, 
Uh, we've got some friends that are already partnering with judges down in Dallas County downtown where the judges said, we need you. Come on. And women and men who are walking alongside those who are hurting, uh, who are ashamed and maybe lost because they didn't have a mom showing them how to be a mom or a dad showing them how to be a dad. Just going, look, we'll walk with you. And yet, there are still those children uh, whose families are generationally broken, whose parental rights have been terminated. And here in Dallas County alone, over 500 kids that are waiting to be adopted today. I know there are more than 200 families across our campuses who've already kind of raised their hand and said, look, I'll give of my family. And uh, I both want to encourage you in saying, well done, continue on. And simultaneously say, hey, that bridge where you welcomed over a child that was in need or you welcomed over their family, um, you're probably gonna have to welcome in some friends in your community group or neighbors or people that you come in contact with to help them see and be destigmatized from some of just the, ah, I could never do that. This month, we're... Um, we're launching an effort with CPS. It's really the first of its kind here in Dallas County called Bridge to Adoption. And on Sunday, February 23rd, we're gonna have about 20 of the kids that are waiting to be adopted, kind of representing this larger group of 500 featured. And we've already got 25 community groups. I didn't even get to get up here and promote it to you. We had 25 community groups that were ready at the waiting that just kind of heard of it by mouth. And, um, they said, yeah, we want to jump in and do that. And so they're sponsoring a table so a child can be represented. Their caseworker, an attorney can come and uh, speak to their story. And then following, we're going to go back to them and say, uh, hey, we need somebody that's going to be an advocate for this child, that's going to continue to walk alongside them, that's going to support their foster family if necessary, that's going to be responsible and say, hey, we're going to use our influence. We're going to use our network to make sure that kid gets a family so that they know they can belong. If you're from the Tarrant County side of the Metroplex, I've got some friends at Hope Fort Worth that I'd encourage you to go check out. They have a similar effort called Hope Now. If you're from the Dallas or, or the Plano or Frisco campuses, uh, some friends at Embrace Texas lead a similar effort called The Second Story that we're engaging in because we just think it's unacceptable for there to be children in our communities that don't have families. That can't stand if the church stands. And so I've got some friends that'll be out in the lobby afterwards. They've got shirts on that say, until every child is home. Church, there's an opportunity. I'm so excited to be a part of it with you. To have the kind of testimony where we go, hey, God moved just in a tremendous way. We looked around at our resources and we went, hey, we're, we're stewards of God's stuff. This marriage, this family, this house, this car, it's God's stuff. And so as you engage in conversations with your community group, with your family, I wanna encourage you to ask the questions, who will God bring to us as we build a bridge? Who's God gonna bring across? Who will we welcome into our lives and homes as we steward his stuff? And what kind of foundations do we need to build? Might we need to dig deeper? Let's go church. We got work to do. Pray with me. God, you are an awesome, great and powerful God. 
and yet you identify yourself as a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows in your holy dwelling who sets the lonely in families. And God, there are people in this room that are stuck in generational cycles of abuse or addiction or violence in the bond of sin. And uh, God, you've set us free. Through Christ, we are free. And so I pray that we would continue to be a bold and courageous people that walk in truth and love to encourage those, to welcome those, to speak out and call out to those that we might cross over and meet them where they are and then walk them back into relationship with you. God, you're good and glorious. You're faithful. And where we feel like we're not enough, we feel like we don't have enough time, help us just look around and look at, at what you've already blessed us with, that we might shine light into the darkness, that we might be salt in our community. God, you're good and holy. We love you, move us and use us. Make your name famous in this kingdom. We ask all these things in the powerful, able and holy and wonderful name of Jesus Christ, amen.